This is an ABC podcast. Today, it's my conversation with the wonderful Simon Longstaff on a subject that preoccupies us so often, how to do the right thing. Nearly everyone needs to think of themselves as a good and moral person, or at least as a morally defensible person, to get through life. But sooner or later, we're all confronted with a dilemma that makes doing the right thing incredibly difficult. And what do you do, for example, when you're in a marriage and the other person goes through a profound change? They change their politics or religion or even their gender. Are you obliged to stick with that person? And what if you're the one doing the changing? What responsibility do you have to the commitments made by your old self? A more common dilemma is the one where you have a piece of information that's crying out to be disclosed. Do you tell the truth, no matter how much it might hurt someone precious to you? And when you're confronted by these dilemmas, is it better to reason your way through or to follow your intuition? Simon Longstaff is the executive director of the Ethics Centre, a non-profit organisation that seeks to bring ethics to the centre of personal and professional life in Australia. And Simon's own story began with one of the most searing ethical dilemmas imaginable. Hello, Simon. Hello. Where were you in the lineup of kids as a, in your family? I was the firstborn. Uh, there were three others from my mother, and then I have another sister when my father remarried. So what happened when it got to the fourth child in your family? Well, my mother had been perfectly fine with me uh, during the pregnancy that led to my birth, and then she'd been unwell with uh, my brothers and sister. And then she, by the time the fourth pregnancy started, she went along to the the obstetrician and she was told that if she continued with the pregnancy, then she would die and the child that would be born would most likely also die. And she therefore had a terrible dilemma, I suppose, as to whether or not she should continue with the pregnancy and effectively leave a husband she loved and two, three, or three children then, or have a termination. And she was a very devout Catholic. And so for her, she had to make that decision. So she, I, I know about it mainly from a letter she wrote just after she'd come back from the doctor where she's writing to her sister. I hadn't seen this until I was in my 30s. And she's writing about the choice she's got. And at the end of it, she refers to me standing there. Apparently I'd been colouring in, a, doing something that a five-year-old would do. And so I don't know um, whether or not um, something of that imprinted it upon myself. Um, but years later, when I finally came to read the letter, I was in an organisation where she could have come because part of her letter is there's nowhere to go, no one to talk to. How did she weigh the, the, the dilemma in her letter? Well, as I say, it's between uh, an obligation to the living, people she loves, her husband and children, and an obligation to an unborn child. And in her worldview of the day, she believed that the child needed to be baptised and to that to occur, it had to be born. Otherwise, the consequences for the child would affect it for eternity in, in principle. And so she was trying to weigh up that that balance between two goods, not one good and one bad, but between the good of the love for the living and the duty she felt she owed to the unborn. What was your father's view? He uh, he wasn't Catholic. He was an Anglican. And he respected her and her conscience. Uh, I think that's where he ultimately lay, that she must be able to determine the matter in a way that was inconsistent with her conscience and he would support her and he would do so irrespective of what the costs were for him and for others. So that's the position he took and the result was not quite as the doctor had predicted. So my brother Angus was born. He was very unwell for a long time but ultimately survived, but a year and a day after his birth, as predicted, mum died. What do you remember of that period, that year and a half? Well, very little of her illness. She was a presence uh, in the home, but then progressively reducing as her illness took a greater toll. 
towards the end of her life, uh, we didn't see her. I remember uh, we had a car, I think, which had a roof that, that used to open. I remember standing up in that at one point, going towards or being in the car park of a hospital while Dad went and visited her. I'm told that she went completely white, that um, her skin was almost translucent and her hair had lost all colour. So Dad described her as looking like an angel, uh, although I never actually saw it. So I've got this kind of mental image. I don't know exactly what the truth of her condition was or what caused it for that matter. But the most uh, poignant memory is the time that when she died, the morning she died or the morning after, because Dad had been to see her in hospital and uh, we were living in a house in Powell Street in Kalara in Sydney at the time. And I still remember him coming back in the car parking and me rushing out to the front of the house to ask him how mum was. And his first response was to say that she was asleep, um, which was obviously not true. But I understand why he said that. But then within minutes, he'd managed to gather himself together and we'd come inside. And I remember sitting on the end of the bed, their bed, in their bedroom on his knee when he told me that she was dead. And I, I can remember precisely how I felt, which was a kind of disbelief in some sense, that she was completely gone because she'd, I mean, in a sense, we'd got used to her not being around by her being away in hospital. But it was, it's just an, it's like the world literally changed. I mean, I felt like a different person. Um, and then the aftermath of that for me, uh, he, he talked to me about needing to be strong for the others. So um, my brother and sister who were at home, and then subsequently, of course, uh, the baby who, who came back. And so that then was something that I took on. And it was interesting. when He, he died um, about a year and a half ago and had his funeral. My uncle had relayed how he and my father, my father was the eldest of his group, had been born in Britain where my grandfather had married an English woman. And they'd been uh, evacuated from Britain because of the Blitz and my grandfather had remained behind. And my father had been charged with the responsibility of taking care of the children with his mother as they made that long journey from Britain by sea to Australia. And I suddenly realised, and it was a really kind of almost overwhelming emotional moment for me, that both of us, by circumstances beyond our control as little boys, had had this duty placed upon us, uh, in his case, to shepherd his brothers from Britain to Australia and mine to act as a kind of shepherd, whatever, uh, to help look after mine because of the death of mum and just what it was to bear that as a child and what formation it must have had for both of us, um, not always for the best, I think, uh, as part of that. So it was a very overwhelming moment at the funeral when I finally was stood up to speak about dad and realised that we'd both had this incredible symmetry in our lives. It sounds stern, like you've got to look after the the younger ones now. Yeah. But but is there a kindness in that insofar as he's asking you to uh, dedicate yourself to other people, you know, and, oh, and, and, yeah. and rededicate yourself to each other? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an entirely reasonable thing to do. There's no one else you can speak to. I mean, you know, in the immediacy of the family, he was alone and um, still had a job he had to do. He had to keep the, you know, the family together, you know, the finances and all the rest. Uh, and deal with his own grief and have these these children. I mean, it was you know just a, a terrible predicament, and it was entirely reasonable, um, given his own experience as well, that he should make that request. And it's not a bad thing. No. I mean, it's a it's a, it's it's a good thing. I don't. There's nothing in my past which I regret and say oh, I wish that hadn't happened because that's to wish away a proportion of who you are, and you can't pick and choose in a life those bits that you say, oh, well, they were fantastic. I'll have those and I'll get rid of some and still be the same person. So We're not consumers of our own No, uh, our own You <laughs> are the product of it all and I, right. I, I, I completely yeah. embrace the whole lot. He must have been terribly lonely. He your was. Dad. He was. Yeah, he, there were nights when he, I mean, he'd come in and just cuddle up to the kids just for a little bit of human contact. I mean... It, it was a it was a terrible blow for him, 
But eventually he found another woman and fell in love with her and um, as happens, life goes on, you know. It, 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 but, yeah, it was a dark period for a while for him at least. Could he bring himself to speak of her, of, of his, his former wife? Could no, he... it, it was a, something strange happened. I, I don't know whether this was a, a product of advice at the time where things, I think a lot of things often were put away from memory and experience. But, look, I remember, uh, just to give you an indication of this, at his 60th birthday, we'd all come back, all of the children together. So there were the five of us and there'd been a party and dad and they'd, they'd gone off to bed. And so it was just the five children. So we're sitting there talking about the celebration and things. And my youngest sister, Emma, uh, said, oh, I've got something to show you. And she, um, she took off and she came back and she had in her hands a photo album, which was the photo album of the marriage of my father, Robert, and my mother, Margaret. So we were all passing it around and looking at it. And I, I suspect I, maybe I'd seen it sometime in the past. But anyway, the, the figures there were recognisably Robert and Margaret. But my youngest brother, Angus, the one who had been born at the end of that, that process, sat there and started weeping. And we sort of said, well, what's wrong? Why are you crying? He said, it's the first time I've ever seen my mother. So I don't know how old he was then. He must have been in his 20s. But they'd put away all images of my mother, all references to her really, throughout his life. And so it was this incredibly poignant moment when he finally sees the picture of the woman who'd made that choice completely out of love for him, and yet he'd never seen her. It's often said, or people often say that when they lose a parent at a young age, it feels like the ground beneath them gives way. They've lost their sense of ground underneath their feet. And yet, on the other hand, when you talk about studying ethics, you talk about getting an ethical grounding. Mm. Is, it, is it too trite to say this, Simon? But do you think in some ways your pursuit of ethics and, and your interest in ethics is a way to kind of rebuild the ground under your feet? I don't think it's too trite to say that. I mean, I wonder about it. I mean, that's why I mentioned when I was reading that letter mm. in which this was all this, this terrible dilemma was being described and I suddenly thought, my gosh, I'm creating this organisation where a woman like my mother could come now for help. I had to say there must have been something about it, whether it was the experience of her in the moment, whether she, who knows if she even said something, oh, so where, where could I go? Uh, or whether it was just some kind of uh, sense exchange between us or whether it was just me becoming interested in philosophy because you ask inevitably, as one might do, why do these things happen to some people and not to others? Whatever it was, I'm sure it had a, a very profound effect and has been part of the process by which I've been interested in philosophy in general, but in ethics in particular. This is one of the things that kind of gets to me when I sometimes hear people who, who might imagine that ethics or ethical discussions are about their luxuries. They, they, they come well, an about optional a, extra a, or something. An optional extra. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a thing you can do when you can eat and when life is right. easy. It's a thing for that when, in fact, it seems to me like the very reverse is true. I've got this wonderful book where it talks about the rabbi of, of this town called Kalnas in Lithuania during the, the Holocaust, who was having to answer extraordinary questions mm. uh, from people in the Jewish ghetto who were facing extermination about how to live. You know, is it ever acceptable for um, uh, a, a Jewish person to accept Christian baptism to get out of death? Is what should be done with the murdered Jews' clothes? You know, according mm. to tradition, these kind of important questions. Can can I adopt a child and bring the child up as my own son? Uh, all the all these very, very powerful questions that occur in extremists. I think that ethics becomes more important when you're reduced to these kind of terrible, terrible situations. What do you think of that? I think it's true. I mean, I've met so many people who've been through, maybe not quite as terrible as that, but I've talked to people in Vietnam, for example, who used to go to school in an underground schoolroom up to their ankles in water. I mean, you know, B-52 bombers bombing above them. And for them, the important questions weren't just about where was the food coming from, but they had questions about liberty and who they were and what they stood for. And you know that there are people who are 
living in the most terrible conditions who will have a set of values and principles which they'll cling to and they'll ask big questions about life. Um, not, not everybody. Some people, I think, find themselves so reduced that they can't. But the literature of the world, uh, when people have been imprisoned or oppressed, their minds turn very readily to these deeper questions about the purpose of a life, meaning, who they are and what they stand for, and particularly the weight of the choices they'll make in a moment. And that's all ethics is about. It's about what basis do we bring to bear for the choices we make and then the things that flow from those. I mean, the world around us is a product of human choice mediated only by the laws of physics. Everything else that we see around us could be different. And so every time we make a choice, whether we're in a supermarket deciding whether or not to buy a particular you know, free-range eggs rather than the cheaper ones from caged birds or whether or not to take something which isn't ours because we need it and the person doesn't need it as much or what we're going to do in the face of terrible persecution. Are we going to become like them or are we going to retain something of ourselves which we refuse to surrender? Those are those profound moments in ethics and they, they, they range from the very, very day-to-day -day through to these deepest ones, but they're all part of a continuum and that's why that ethical dimension of our humanity is, I think, as Socrates argued, the part that defines us as being human. We, we have this extraordinary ability to look beyond the demands of instinct or desire or habit and convention and make conscious choices, and that's the ethical part of us. You spent your summer holidays as a kid in outback Queensland. Tell me about the kind of things you learnt there out in Western Queensland. Well, this was really a gift from my stepmother and her family. Um, Dad had married uh, a woman who, and their family, the Lee family, had properties by that time ranging from John Darien on the Darling Downs just on the Oakey River through Surratt right through to a place called Tambo. And my sort of experience was everything from, you know, cutting burrs and picking up sticks and learning how to build a fence and digging post holes by hand with a shovel and a crowbar, ploughing, fixing windmill, I mean, all sorts of things, mustering, sweeping the board in this beautiful old 28-stand shearing shed. They only used seven by then, but these all hand-built. So just incredible experiences, some of them which were very tough, um, but in my case, uh, generally well-formed. And, and, and people, like my first involvement with Indigenous people, being taught to ride a horse by this uh, guy, Claude Igambago, who, who he was a tough teacher. You know, he sort of, you know, made you loosen the girth and the surcingle on your saddle and, and learn to ride without it being properly attached to the horse or uh, taking off one stirrup and lengthening it as a way of, you know, how you could go hunting pigs um, <laughs> with a stirrup <laughs> iron. Uh, so these, uh, another guy, um, I mean, being, being caught in a, a flooded creek when this guy who was a diabetic and having to swim across a, a flooded river in a on horseback and through these sandalwood um, stands of trees and things and oh just so it was incredible hands-on experience for a, a young bloke you know driving trucks and tractors and all sorts of things yeah, in, so. in that epic landscape too that's really quite unforgettable in western it Queensland. it is yeah. it is and and you know a place where you can see the bitterness of the storm cloud that passes by a few kilometers away and you know that someone else is getting a good soaking and you're not <laughs> um and having to kill your own food um you know to to eat uh knowing about that and the reality and and seeing that in its non-industrial way there are there is a relationship that exists. Uh, yeah, yeah, remarkable formative experiences for which I'm forever grateful. Now, this, this really blows my mind. After school, you, you decided to go to Groot Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria, that, that extraordinary island. I've never been there. Oh. Um, um, why there? Why did you go to Groot Island? So um, my family had given me a, a very good education. I'd been at boarding school. That was partly one of the kind of outworkings, if you like, of mum's death and you know, some of the stresses and strains that you get in families. And so I'd ended up in boarding school. And I finished school when I was 16 years of age. And I had this vague idea that 
like most people in my generation, I just travel on and go to university until my father said to me, he said, well, what are you thinking to do now? You know, you finished school. I said, oh, I've got to go to university. He said, well, how do you think you're going to be paying for any of this? You know, where are you going to live? What are you going to do? I said, <laughs> oh, what do you mean? He said, well, I've just got to tell you, um, we've given you everything we're ever going to give you. you. You've had your education and from that point on now, you're on your own. It's up to you. Well, I don't know how. I think I must have had $16 to my name. I mean, the stuff I did up in the country, you never might, got paid for that. He might have given you a year's notice on that. Yeah. But... <laughs> no, there wasn't any notice. Right. So the only thing that you could really do where you could earn decent money and and live that I could think of, and, and to his credit, he sort of helped me think about it, was to go into the mining industry. So I remember going along to the old Commonwealth Government buildings at Chifley Square and I had to get my prospectors and miners certificate. Um, I don't know if they still do it, but I actually possessed one of those and was able to get a job as what was called a service attendant up on Groot Island on the manganese mine there, run by a BHP subsidiary as it then was called Gemco. And so a couple of days after my 17th birthday, I turned up and that's what I started doing. And service attendant's just a glorified name for a cleaner. So I used to have to <laughs> – I scrubbed right. out toilets, I moved furniture. I remember having to approach rubbish bins which had two-day-old collections of prawns and milkshakes <laughs> in the tropics. If anybody's ever experienced that in the middle of the wet season, they'd know what a wonderful challenge that is. And <laughs> oh, God. I don't really... think you'd ever get the smell of that out of your nostrils, would you? <laughs> something, no. you something you don't forget. No, no. Um, but it, uh, <laughs> yeah. But 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 very soon after, I had this really kind of um, amazing experience. The fellow who was my immediate supervisor—it's quite a hierarchical. In fact, it was feudal. Uh, as a wages employee, I had to wear uh, safety boots, and there were long trousers and. My, or anyway, it was boots and long socks, but there was a kind of this will become significant in a moment. And my supervisor, this guy called Arthur Abel, sat me down one day and wanted to know about me. And I was really getting stuck into the local Aboriginal people and saying some absolutely terrible things about them, which bore no resemblance to my early experience with this guy who taught me to ride horses. And anyway, that night um, I went down to what was called the wet canteen or wet mess, which is basically a bar. And it was at that time a tiny little shed with a bit of metal roof and wires and there was a pool table. And of course, I should never have been down there. As a 17-year-old, I wasn't old enough to drink. You know, I'm drinking up because no one it, no one asks for your licence because it's presumed that you're 18 years or older if you're on the island, which was the rule, uh, as it turned out. And so I'm getting drunker and drunker. And then this guy who'd been telling me how terrible the Aboriginal people were was introducing to all of his mates and they're all Aboriginal. So I'm completely confused by this time until about 10 o'clock at night, the real Arthur Abel walks in the door of this bar and I realise I've been talking to a completely different person called Jack O'Hare who I'd confused for Arthur Abel and actually turned out to be one of the founders of the... Um, the St John's Ambulance in the Territory, and was a great friend of the Indigenous people. So that's how I was, by alcohol mistake, probably the story of my life, <laughs> these lucky, strange moments, I was introduced to the Indigenous people who immediately uh, took me under their wing and uh, started a relationship which persists to this day. You confront issues of life and death in that, that work up there? Yeah, literally. I, I mean... The work, look, so I, I didn't stay as a cleaner for long. I mean, I, I studied a lot. I, I did all these things around the emergency care of the sick and injured and, you know, basically I did the qualifications to become a, an emergency services person. So I was qualified to drive an ambulance, operate a fire truck, um, and I did all sorts of things like that, you know, putting out fires and taking people who'd had injuries and things of that kind. But... Um, in the course of that, unfortunately, um, there was a f particular fatality that I encountered directly where a man had been coming home from work on a motorcycle and had wrapped himself around a palm tree. And if you looked at him, you would have thought that there was nothing wrong with him. But up in the medical centre, uh, the nursing staff and myself and a couple of others were working on this man to try and keep him alive. 
at a time when we didn't have a doctor because this is a very remote part of Australia and there weren't always doctors on the island. And so there was a radio telephone that was connected through to Newland Boy to the hospital there. We were trying to get direction. But as I was um, giving uh, CPR to this man, he died under my hands. I actually was touching him as he as the life ebbed away. And that, that was, you know, significant because strange. it's a very strange thing when a person's dead after being alive. I mean, they comp- to me at least in my experience, they were one thing one moment and they were something else the next. Um, you could feel, I could feel, I don't think it was just my imagination, this palpable difference between a live person and a dead person. And then before we took him away from the treatment room, his young son, who would have only been a few years younger than me, came in and wept over the body of his dead father and then I had to pack that body up into a body bag and literally put him on my shoulder and put him into a cool room overnight before taking the body out to the airport the next day to be taken off for a, an autopsy. And as it was, he'd ruptured his spleen. There was nothing we could have done to save him. But it's, it was just one of those formative experiences which changes who you are. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So jumping ahead a bit here from your time in Groot Island, mm. you went to Cambridge, got a scholarship mm. to Cambridge, mm. and you did philosophy there and, mm-hmm. and, and ethics as part of that. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a really interesting jump for someone who knew how to <laughs> ride a horse, fix a fence, fix a generator, I'm guessing, as well, and, and, and do all those kind of things. Why, why ethics? Why ethics and philosophy? I'd progressively develop a real interest in, in ideas, I think triggered by early events. Look, even on Groot Island, I had the most amazing conversations. People think that... You know, rich conversations about philosophical questions are going to happen inside these ivy-covered, turreted buildings. No, but no, no. no. That, that's it, never been my experience, my, actually. Some no. of the best conversations I had with fitters mm. and turners and you know, truck drivers and things. So I'd always been encouraged to have that. And I discovered Socrates, who, to my mind, is a great hero, not only one of the great founding figures of philosophy as explained to us by Plato, but more importantly, someone who did philosophy in the public sphere. And so that had attracted me. And when I got to Cambridge, it, it sort of supercharged, if you like, my interest in that. And it's a really compelling place for for challenging thinking. I mean, my supervisor, and this was a bad lesson to learn after, so I had to unlearn it. But when I turned up, he said, oh, there's only one rule here. I thought, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, you go for the jugular. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? Go for who's, what, someone's jugular? Or does well, he I mean... Think, I think to give him... The best interpretation, he meant the intellectual jugular in another person's argument. But basically, it was a form of intellectual engagement, which was about taking no prisoners. It was about winning, winning mm. about winning. And I turn out to be really good at doing that. And so I did well. I progressed very quickly, um, ended up, uh, originally I'd gone for a master's and stayed on to do a doctorate, which I did in very quick time. But I also realised that by the time I'd fully internalised that lesson, I'd become a bully, an intellectual bully. And in doing so, I'd effectively betrayed what I think philosophy is supposed to be about. I mean, you can read Plato's dialogues and you can see them as Socrates trying to prove the point and win the argument and expose the idiocy or lack of understanding of those with whom he's speaking. Completely, I don't think that's it at all. I think he genuinely didn't know the answer to a lot of the questions that he was seeking to answer. And he genuinely was trying to draw out for other people what they thought. And in doing so, if it exposed that there was an inconsistency in their views, then they were both learning. It wasn't It wasn't this smarty-pants philosopher uh, always being right. Yeah, I mean, isn't the point of philosophy not how clever I am, but it's 
How, what do we make of this world we live in with such tiny minds with limited and limited information? Yeah, it is. It requires a certain kind of humility, which is not what I was encouraged to show at the beginning. But thank heavens, I managed at some point to recognise that that is what I'd become. Did someone tell that to you? No, no, I had a, I had a moment. I was actually with my father and mother-in-law in a car and I think we were somewhere in Britain and they'd been saying something quite innocuous about it being a nice day and I suddenly said, what do you mean by What is nice? Thought, what is a yeah, day? Exactly, something, something completely <laughs> stupid. Um, and I thought, oh, what? On earth am I doing so? So that no, it was that at that point. I'm not sure they were even aware of the effect it had on me. But at that point, and I'm, not to say I'm always perfect in this. I must admit, you know, I'm probably still yeah you know, can get the bit between my teeth. But uh, it's a lesson I I learned, and I try to hold myself accountable to. When you came back to Australia, you eventually set up the Ethics Centre yeah. over time. And uh, now, this, according to your your website, began with. A discussion in, a, in in the middle of Sydney CBD, a public discussion. How did that work? Well, the cent, the centre started. Um, it, it had its precursors were back in the nineteen eighties with Alan Bond and Christopher Scase and a group of people, both within business and within the Anglican Church, St James Anglican Church in King Street, saying, "What are we going to do about this?" And there was a vital intermediary in that, a man called Meredith Ryan, who was both company secretary at AMP where Sir Vincent Fairfax had been asking these questions and on the parish council at St James. So that's what it brought into existence. So they knew that they needed to do something. What I started to do soon after I got back was to actually literally go into Martin Place with 10 plastic chairs in a circle and a couple of cardboard signs on the footpath that said, if you want to talk to a philosopher, take a seat. And I'd just sit there and people would come up uh, every time I did it and want to sit down and talk about everything from what it was like being a cyclist on a road full of angry drivers through to somebody whose mother came from England who'd felt guilty about not believing in God for 40 years and uh, really, really diverse issues. And in a sense, that partly shaped not just those conversations but a responsive nature of the centre, which is never – I mean, it's a charity – and it's never had any endowments or capital. It has a near-death experience every year or so. And the only way it's kept going is because it's very responsive to the actual needs that people have. So it's it's become unique. There's nothing else like it in the world because it's got this diversity. It deals with everything from life and death issues in hospitals and in war through to sport and business, uh, but always being attentive to the the needs of people rather than thinking it set itself up. It's, it's not a moral policeman. It's just a place to help people make better decisions. One of the big ethical issues that comes up all the time on this, on this program uh, is the question of family secrets. Mm. Family secrets come up all the time. Um, it turns out dad wasn't what he said he was. Mm. Dad kept it a secret all these years. That's a big theme on the show. Who is dad? Uh, dad? Dad didn't tell me this, this, this and this. And I think now I understand what he did or, or I don't understand what he did. That's, that's a thing that often comes up. Sometimes it's mum, but most of the time it's dad, mm. actually. Is, is this common in your line of work? Well, it's not just common in my line of work. It's common in my life, too. I've had something similar happen mm. uh, where you discover something, um, which I think is probably always intended to be discovered, uh, which suddenly makes sense of the world. Uh, but it contains within it you know, seeds of potential disturbance and you know you've got to reconcile yourself it's not so much whether or not the person is the person that you think they were sometimes you'll find in families that there are very deep secrets revealed where the person is completely unlike what people thought Uh, but there are other times when it's less serious than that when it's simply an explanation for events that you know like the missing piece in a, a jigsaw puzzle and then you've got to say well what do you do with it you know do you lay it into the table and have the suddenly the puzzle become clear, but know that there's going to be all sorts of disruptions as a result of that? Or do you hold on to the piece and let it remain incomplete and some of the tensions with that, but knowing that there will be a time when it's right to lay it down? So with that dilemma, do you tend to go one way or another? I wish I could say that I had this sense of absolute clear reason. No, but there's horses for courses, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For me, I suppose um, the orientation is towards um, letting the truth speak at the appropriate time 
and so it's not about choosing truth over another thing. It's more to do with what's the time when it will be most useful for that to be done. And I can't say that there's an algorithm I can express that would say when that time has come, but I think I'll have a, pre a fair sense of it, um, that that will be the time. Do you need reason to figure these things out? Does, is reason always going to be better than gut instinct? It's a combination. So there's a lot of instinct that is just plain wrong. So I don't know if you've ever been in a car when you've started on the skid, but the instinctive response from most most drivers is to throw their foot on the brake, which is exactly the wrong thing to do in a skid. What you have to do instead is somewhat counterintuitively gently accelerate out of the skid. Now, intuition can be like that in many other areas of life where your intuition is throw your foot on the equivalent of the ethical brake, and it's precisely the wrong thing to do. So what you can do is you can practice being on the equivalent of an ethical skid pad where you start to take yourself through scenarios and think more and more about why you're doing what you're doing. And progressively, you can train yourself so that your intuition is in accordance with what reason and principle and other things would require. And that's that's the traditional way that people have looked to have a well-formed human being is that they're not just raw instinct which can make those kind of fundamental mistakes which lead you to slide into the side of a tree or something, but you progressively become better at doing this. So I see the combination of the two. I think uh, reason, emotion, the will, they've all got to be held in check together uh, but reason ultimately, I think, provides the surer path to avoid the kind of damage that would otherwise occur. To go through this process, you need a bit of moral imagination, don't you? Mm. That's the thing. Not everyone has that, though, do they? I mean, most of the most infuriating people I've ever dealt with are people who've bought some kind of off-the-shelf ethical system with an ism at the end of it. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that's just how people are most of the time, isn't it? They just they would rather buy that thing off the shelf, live within that framework and not really want that interrogated too hard because it just hurts too much. Well, I think you're putting clearly one of the differences between, well, the major difference between morality and ethics. So, what is that? Well, morality um, is an answer to the, I mean, there's an overarching question in ethics, what ought one to do? And there are a range of different frameworks within which that can be answered. So you could hear, for example, a Christian voice saying, well, we know the answer to that. We've got this little box and in it there's got values and principles and revealed truths and exemplary lives and take the box and apply that and you'll always get the right answer. But then there's another voice over there saying, oh, no, 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 not that one. Look at ours. Ours is much better, which might be a Jewish one or an Islamic one or a Baha'i one or, or a, a Marxist one. one in fact. Or a Marxist one yeah. or a utilitarian one. So you've got all these boxes with their proponents, each claiming take the box, apply what's in it, and you'll always get the right answer. And for some people that's enough. They will take it and without too much thought, they will apply it almost habitually. They will be habitually truthful or habitually kind or habitually something else according to the tenets of this morality, which is the box. It's a morality. What ethics requires is something more than that. It requires you not merely to apply the framework, but to do so in a form that is part of an examined life where you reflect on the circumstances in which you find yourself, the applicability of the values and principles, where you challenge them. And rather than just do it as a matter of habit, you make these things which are truly your own so that the life you live is that life which you have chosen rather than just inherited. Do people hate it when you ask them to do that? Oh, yeah. But it's... um, <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a hell of a lot easier if you could just live life as a matter of habit. The trouble is that Nearly all of the things that have gone wrong in the world when you ask people, why did you do it? The most common response is, ah, oh, everybody was doing it. That's just the way things were done back then. Um, people don't see the nature of their things because they don't look. And that's because they live a moral life or within a moral framework without this ethical overlay. And to go back to your original part of this question, one of the essential things that ethics requires then is to have a moral, not just moral courage, but a moral imagination. What is it like to be in the shoes of somebody else, to imagine yourself into a world which you may not currently live in, 
to imagine yourself into circumstances where others might be experiencing things which are not your own, but you have some sense of it, some regard, even some interest in it. Isn't that off-the-shelf Christianity, what you're talking about right there? That just sounds exactly what, what <laughs> that's one of the invocations of, of Christ's teaching right there, isn't it? Is that oh, an instinct within you? There, there, are, there, are, there are many elements that you will find in religions like Christianity and others where they've got core components that keep on coming through time and time and again. You'll find it in the philosophers, um, in so- some of Socrates and Plato's, you'll find it in even like people like Hume. The, the, these themes which seem to be constant, whether it's in East or West, you find these things com- commonly arising because the basic structure of choice uh, around you know values and principles and how we choose, the very notions of things being good and right they're both universal in terms of time and, and and place. Every place, every time has this basic structure. Its content changes and you can bring yourself to bear to understand how that applies. But, yeah, they're, 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 I think there are deep truths in this about the examined life which which we have you, you can come to without having to buy a particular metaphysical or theological worldview but will be common to many. Your organisation is often asked to look into uh, ethical conduct of institutions, uh, mm. large organisations that are often perceived to be in crisis at the moment in the Western world or in democracies. Um, there are large corporations, banks, um, parliaments, churches, um, churches all, of the, all of this sort of thing. They're, they're often perceived to be in crisis. Do these organisations organizations tend to suffer from the same problems, even though they're, they're, they're part of very different parts of public life in Australia? Yes, they do. And... I think we're at a, a really, really serious point in, in our history. My view is that within the next 10 or 20 years, there'll be civilizational change wrought by technological innovation, whether it's through biology, where most fundamental questions about what it means to be human will be posed by our ability to engineer the genome as we wish, robotics, AI expert systems, that will have profound dislocation in terms of how people derive meaning. At the moment, it's very much attached to their employment. hasn't always been and may not always be, but that will happen. You'll see large numbers of people in the middle classes displaced in a way that they haven't been for centuries. Now, I don't raise that to say, oh, this is terrible. What it, I do is to say, this is change of a profound kind. And normally, as a society, we would cope with that by having a set of institutions that operate as shock absorbers, that help us make the transition, that inspire trust that there are people who will have a regard for the welfare of society and not just a subset. And what I think of that as, as if you like, ethical infrastructure which is just as important as social, as political, or so physical infrastructure and technical infrastructure. There's this kind of ethical infrastructure which has in all these institutions in it and things like professions, and it's all broken at the moment. When it's most needed, it's all broken. And why is it broken? Because I think virtually every institution has betrayed its own underlying purposes because they've forgotten them. Some institutions, very long-standing ones, were brought into existence by these very profound insights in the human condition, which served as the foundation stones on which they were built. Built at the cost of great pain. Great pain, but also the trouble about foundation stones is that no one ever looks at them. People become, imagine a a soaring um, building. They tend to grow up and they become magnificent. They have flying buttresses and stained glass windows and... Magnificent. We all look at that stuff. Meanwhile, the foundations can be left to wither away during what I call a long age of forgetting, in which over centuries, sometimes millennia, the purpose of our institutions has been forgotten. And so essentially good people have betrayed them, and they've all fallen around the same time. So I think we have a profound challenge. And exci- not, not, not a, this isn't a bad thing. A really exciting thing to do is to say... How do we ask, what are the institutions we need? And uh, we may rediscover purposes that our ancestors did, but the difference will be that they'll be true for us. And on that basis, we can create them so that they're serviceable for the kind of change that we need to make the most of, because all of those technologies, all of those new geopolitical realities could be a source of absolute wonder for the human condition. You know, 
removing drudgery and pain and so many things. But that's a choice we have to make. And so we will only do so if we build the ethics back into the design of our institutions and our technologies and everything we build and recreate it fresh, give it a new kind of life. And I think that's something we need to invest in as a society because the costs of not doing it are colossal. We've just seen that in the last year. Just even if you just look at, forget about social costs, just economic cost. You know, what we've lost as a society even in the last year with the banks alone, imagine if you could have prevented that because the failure, it's clear from Kenneth Hayne, all the laws were in place, all the cost is a result of ethical failure where it occurred, not an absence of regulation or law. And we should be able to manage that better. One of the things that's quite troubling is the the current tendency to kind of shrug at democracy at the moment. Mm. There's a kind of a shrugging at the moment. Well, it's no, no better than anything else that, that's going on at the moment. People who've lived through that anything else tend to view the situation very differently. Britain's going through its own terrible crisis at the moment. And a recent poll that was published uh, stated uh, where people were asked whether Britain, Britain needs a strong ruler willing to break the rules. 54% of people polled agreed with that. And that's a kind of an abdication of rule of law there. 54% of people in Britain thought that they needed a strong man willing to break the rules. I mean, it's worse there than it is here, that's for sure. But uh, could you see us getting to that point, Simon? Potentially. Um most regrettably, I think people who dismiss democracy as just another system, as you suggest, have no idea of the effects of the alternatives and what an extraordinary achievement democracy is and how much has been suffered for the sake of its being established and maintained. But I think we also have to be honest with ourselves about the mood of the public. The kind of people I used to kick around with a lot in Queensland and the Territory and down in Tassie. A lot of people in Australia, and I suspect in Britain and in America, honestly believe that the promises that were made to them as citizens within a democracy have been broken. It was supposed to be about them. The market was supposed to increase the stock of common good and make us all better off. There's all these promises that were made sometimes as far back as the 17th century which have been forgotten, as I was saying before. And so people are looking and they're saying, well, who, who's caring about us? Uh, if you're in a marginal... Oh, look, I heard this said the other day on the ABC. There was interviewing some mayors and other people in regional Australia and they said, look, the lesson's pretty clear. Just make yourself into a marginal electorate. <laughs> it's the only way you get seen. You know, that's true. You can be invisible in this country if you don't live in a marginal electorate. The political class just don't see you. And if you're invisible, you feel abandoned and frightened, particularly in the face of the changes that are coming. People think the Australian public don't get it. They do. They are right on to the nature of the world in which they live and they're never treated adequately with the respect I think they deserve because they feel what's coming and they want to know that there's someone there who they can trust to have a regard to their interest and make sure that the transitions to come are both just and orderly. So... We shouldn't throw away our democracy. We shouldn't diminish it. It's an extraordinary system. But those people who exercise some kind of control over it need to have a really serious think, not just about how to win the next election or what to do about their party, but what is their duty to the system as a whole so that people can invest trust and regard in it. There's a tension at the moment between the long-standing concepts of freedom of speech as opposed to crude racist vilification. Hmm. Former Senator George Brander stood up in the Senate and said the right to freedom of speech includes the right to be a bigot. Was he right? I don't know what he meant by bigot. I mean, I, for my mind, I have a strong presumption in favour of free speech, but not at any cost. I mean, anybody who's read any kind of history will know that the world's worst, worst things that humans have ever done to each other, whether it's slavery or genocide, have been at the start, about a denial of the essential humanity of another person by saying, oh, because of their religion, their colour, whatever it is, they're not fully human. So I would never allow free speech to extend to a point where it denies the essential humanity of another person, and I would never allow it to an incitement to violence against another person because those things fundamentally violate our most commonly understood and essential components for an ethical life. 
But within that, if somebody wants to say something to me that I'm fat, stupid, this or that, I may find it deeply offensive. I might not like it. It may not promote a very harmonious moment. But okay, I'm going to live with that because I think I'd rather know that that's what they really think and be able to deal with it rather than have those channeled in a subterranean way. What I hope is that in conditions of liberty, people will then act with a fair measure of responsibility and not use it simply to harm others. I think you're rather lovely, Simon. I think I should say that <laughs> at the outset. Well, that's nice. Thank that's, you. I don't want to hear you, you say too. terrible things about yourself on this program. <laughs> I'm, not going to hear, I'm not going to have you vilify Simon Longstaff on this program like that. I'm not going to have that. There's an old saying, a philosopher saying, and I can't remember the philosopher, who said that freedom of speech isn't the licence to say whatever you like. It's the liberty to do as you ought. Is that too high-minded or is that about right? I think that's the ideal I was seeking to appeal to, that we should understand that our freedom is something it's that we claim for ourselves as a right, but with it comes a commensurate responsibility. And we ought not to just do something because we can. In fact, the mere fact that we can do something doesn't mean that we should. Does that reflect a cultural change in Australia? Now, more and more Australians come from various backgrounds in cultures which prize group rights over individual rights. Do you see that as an ongoing tension in Australia? I think it potentially could be, but the point is that in the, any philosophy that I think worth its name in this area, it recognises the intrinsic dignity of the person. It doesn't deny the validity of their place in the community or some other formation, but essentially as persons, we should begin with that. And if we can build from that point and understand that that intrinsic dignity doesn't mean we have to be respectful in the way of being polite, but the, the fundamental dignity should not be violated. That's a bedrock we should never lose. I've got about another 19 ethical propositions to put to you. I'd love for you to come back on the program another time. Uh, before too long so we can go through many more of these and more and more of them keep coming up. But in the meantime, it's been such a pleasure having you on the program, Simon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. It's called the oldest profession, but maybe it should be called the misunderstood profession. Hey, I'm Tilly Lawless, and I'm an author, an advocate, and a sex worker. Tall Tales and True is a podcast that brings you the best in live storytelling with a whole season of fab stories from me and other sex workers. I was in my element, actually. I was just whipping all these guys. It was just a suede whip. Look, maybe I'm just paranoid because I know what I am and she doesn't quite. And I'm told that my highest aspiration as a sex working parent is to ensure that she never does. One of the many things we as trans women experience in the sex industry is shaming from a client because of their own guilt. Accepting who I truly am changed everything. You can find Tall Tales and True on the ABC Listen app.